0: Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Carp, and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that are gonna take us through act four of King Henry IV, part one. We ended act three, um, our last moment in the tavern, wishing that the tavern could be our drum with Falstaff. Um, and we are now moving, and we're gonna meet some more of the rebels, including one of my favorite freaking characters, the Earl of Douglas, who is the Scottish Lord and representing the Scottish power, um, who also, uh, if you like stage combat, I think has more sword fights than any other character in Shakespeare. He has four, four fights in the space of like three pages. Pretty rad. Anyway, take it away whenever, whenever you're ready. Well said, my noble Scott. If speaking
1: truth in this fine age were not thought flattery, such attribution should the Douglas have, as not a soldier of this season's stamp should go so general current through the world. By God, I cannot flatter. I do defy the tongues of soothers, but a braver place in my heart's love hath no man than yourself. Nay, task me to my word, approve me, Lord.
2: Thou art the king of honor. No man so potent breathes upon the ground, but I will beard him.
1: Do so, and tis well. What letters hast thou there? I can but thank you.
3: These letters come from your father.
1: Letters from him? Why comes he not himself?
3: He cannot come, my lord. He is grievous sick.
1: Zooms, how has he the leisure to be sick in such a jostling time? Who leads his power?
4: Under whose government come they along?
3: His letters bear his mind, not I, my lord.
4: I prithee tell me, doth he keep his bed?
3: He did, my lord, four days ere I set forth. And at the time of my departure thence, he was much feared by his physicians.
4: I would the state of time had first been whole, ere he by sickness had been visited. His health was never better worth than now. Sick now? Droop now?
1: This sickness doth infect the very lifeblood of our enterprise, tis catching hither even to our camp. He writes me here that inward sickness and that his friends by deputation could not so soon be drawn, nor did he think it meet to lay so dangerous and dear a trust on any soul removed but on his own. Yet doth he give us bold advertisement that with our small injunction we should on, to see how fortune is disposed to us, for as he writes, there is no quailing now because the king is certainly possessed of all our purposes.
4: What say you to it? Your father's sickness is a maim to us. A perilous gash, a very limb
1: lopped off. And yet, in faith, it is not. His present want seems more than we shall find it. Were it good to set the exact wealth of all our states all at one cast? To set so rich a main on the nice hazard of one doubtful hour? It yeah, were not good. For therein we should read the very bottom and the soul of hope, the very list, the very utmost bound of all our fortunes.
2: Eighth, and so we should, where now remains a sweet reversion. We may boldly speed upon the hope of what is to come in. A comfort of retirement lives in this.
1: A rendezvous a home to fly unto, if that the devil and mischance look big upon the maidenhead of our affairs.
4: But yet I would your father had been here. The quality and hair of our attempt brooks no division. It will be thought by some that know not why he is away, that wisdom, loyalty, and mere dislike of our proceedings kept the earl from hence. And think how such an apprehension may turn the tide of fearful faction and breed a kind of question in our cause. For well you know, we of the offering side must keep aloof from strict arbitrament, And stop all sight-holes, every loop from whence the eye of reason may pry upon us. This absence of your fathers draws a curtain that shows the ignorant kind of a fear before not dreamt of. You strain too far.
1: I rather of his absence make this use. It lends a luster, a more great opinion, a larger dare to our great enterprise than if the Earl were here. For men must think, if we without his help can make a head to push against the kingdom, with his help, we shall o'erturn it topsy-turvy down. Yet all goes well,
0: yet all our joints are whole.
2: As heart can think. There is not such a word spoke of in Scotland as this term of fear.
0: Okay, let's let's pause there. <laughs> I love the fact that like the Scots know no fear. Um, it's just <laughs> like so rad. Um, so, what are our impressions of 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 this this uh, alliance here? Are we any any better than we were in Act Three <laughs> in terms of like sort of having a cohesive strategy? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Sam not. says no.
1: No, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. seem like it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's tricky. Um, I I think what's what's fascinating about this to me is like Worcester and Hotspurs' different um, interpretations of how people will, or, or rather, um, extrapolations of how people will interpret this situation. And Worcester being just very quick to point out uh, this doesn't look good <laughs> and. <laughs> when we're the ones leading the rebellion, we gotta look good. And Hotspur being like, no, no, no. It just means that we're that much cooler <laughs> for doing well, this with a smaller force. Yeah, Sam. It's, it's the
5: Henry V, we few, we happy few argument, yeah, right? That's yeah. the argument that's being made. It's the battle of Agincourt like here echoed and it's like Hotspur is the first person to put it out there in the universe, but it's Hal you know, in two plays from now, who's actually going to achieve the thing that Hosper kind of is arguing for here, which I think is interesting.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Mitch. It
2: it also strikes me as like um, a very realistic assessment of like what, of the rationalization that happens when these guys are screwed, right? Like this is really bad. Right. Like a portion of their army, it's only going to get worse, but a portion portion of their, yeah, the biggest portion of their (laughs) army is not coming. Right. And they, and the king already knows, in all likelihood, that they are having this rebellion. So they can't just like nix it. Right. Like he's going to, he's going to chop their heads off if they, if they do that. And like hot, even Hotspur, like, does say, like, a perilous gash, a very limbed, a very limb lopped off period yeah. and yet in faith right like it does sort of strike me that even even he's like this is bad yeah no it's not right like like there's sort of the create the rationalizations that happen in your head when there's nothing else you can do
0: yeah Absolutely.
1: I mean, the, doing the cold read of it i was like oh what a fun scene it's there's so many pivots like there's so at least i think Wor- Worcester is very constant worcester seems like thank god worcester's there but like yeah for hotspur it's kind of like pivoting from like I, the douglas is like the m- most amazing what a great speech at the top I it's know. like i don't usually tell people i love them but man i love you uh, <laughs> And then and then just to watch them all kind of pivot from like this is bad to this is great and and we can spin this it, it does um yeah it does feel like it's it has a like potential for comedy but it is such a terrible terrible moment for
0: their plan it's like oh they're scrambling. Absolutely. Well, and, and what's interesting and what, what is a question, I think an important question is, is Northumberland actually sick? Because at the top of Henry IV, part two, rumor tells us that Northumberland lies crafty sick, which is mm. like, he's cunningly sick. So it's like when you have a big test and you're like, mom, I need a personal day, <laughs> you know, back in high school, right? We, we none of us ever did that um it's like there's a there's a there's something behind this this um and and we're as we're gonna see with with vernon coming in and giving us more bad news that glendower is not coming either um and and then we'll see at the end of this act when we get the most frequently cut (laughs) uh scene uh of the archbishop and sir michael but gives that scene gives us the really important information that Glendower isn't coming because he was overruled by prophecies that said that they would lose. And that's the only time in the play that we get that um, information, that Glendower was going to come and then was like, "Mm, getting some bad vibes, I'm out. Um, But essentially, these two people not showing up is really what completely screws over um, the rebel.
6: Yeah. And it's, I, I think it's really fascinating the, uh, just structurally how at the end of the, um, well, the, the Henry and Hal scene where it's the coming together and this is like this, the fracturing of the family, you know? yeah So.
0: Absolutely. That's a wonderful point. I mean, this is, this isn't just like anyone not showing up. This is Hotspur's father not showing up to support him. Um, and that's, that's a Leaving big him for dead.
2: Death. Yeah. Like, if we're talking about fathers and sons here, like, wow. I mean, I know he's got a responsibility to, like, all of the people he's leading, right? Like, he, he doesn't want to lead them to their death either. But, like, he is leaving his son hanging if it's true that he's not sick. Like
0: absolutely that's why that lady percy speech she only appears w- once more in this this whole tetralogy and it's in the next play and she has this incredible speech where she essentially kind of yells at northumberland and it's like don't don't not don't not go now when you could have gone to support your son and if you had gone i wouldn't be a widow at this point it's a, it's a really incredible speech but yeah, I, I would also just love to talk about Douglas, which is like bring a new energy into this, <laughs> this room. Um, I love this. His first, yeah, the King of Honor. There's no one so powerful that breathes on the face of the earth, but I will beard him, which is like I will defy him. I'll like fight him. He's just such, he just speaks differently. Sa- same with Glendower. Like there's there's something very, um, as opposed to Glendower, which has this sort of beautiful lyrical imagery, like Douglas is just like very sharp and to the point and just very lean. And there's no kind of fat in the, in the speech. Um, I've been cooking a lot. Um, <laughs> and, like there's something just very different about, about him. Um, did you yeah. notice anything? What are your impressions of, of the character, Mitch?
2: Yeah, I mean, you were—you've talked several times about the othering of yeah. the Welsh and the and the Scottish, and I do think that he feels a little bit um, machine-like and inhuman, almost like a late Coriolanus, <laughs> like <laughs> late, late in the play t- type of way. Um, yeah, and so and I noticed that that whole thing I said about them sort of freaking out about Northumberland and and rationalizing it—we actually don't see Douglas. Do any of that. All of Douglas's lines, like he's sort of only used to give the voice of like, we feel no fear, right? Like, we feel nothing, right? And I I do think he's, yeah, this
0: sort of like Scottish machine. Um yeah. He's a killing machine. I mean, he really, he really is. I remember having a a conversation with the the actor, this wonderful Santa Fe actor who was who was playing uh Douglas in the production, and I was like I feel like someone who kills this many people in battle has to have some kind of like ritual. And so we came up with this ritual where every single time he killed someone, he cut himself on his arm. So he came in and he had all these scars down his arm. And then as the battle went forward, each time he killed someone, he would just give this little like, it was like nicking his skin. And, it, and that was really his, I was like, there's some sort of like, ritual and i just gave him that note and that's what he came up with and i was like that's pretty messed up but i to me it like worked because it was like it's this way of him internalizing like all of this 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 violence and and kind of um every time he's talked about uh in the play before we meet him you know the way the king talks about him uh in that in the previous scene with with prince how like he's one of the best warriors that this this island has ever seen um he's very very held in very high regard but also cursed a lot because of his uh potency on the field as it were yeah sam
5: i mean he's the only character that gets the put in front of his name right like it's never the glendower or it's never the Hotspur. he's he's the only there is a Firm capital T, <laughs> the before when it, when other characters talk about him later on, and and I think that that really does um, give a lot of like weight to the importance of just like the force of energy that that is supposed to be. Like you 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 have to be pretty crazy to get a the uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like, what Ariana is like. Says. <laughs> Yeah, not to be confused with any other one. It is the. Like, <laughs> not a, can, but yeah. only one, yeah. the.
7: I'm University. sorry, what was that, University? Andrew? There can be only one.
4: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, when he's on the battlefield in the heat of battle, um, someone asks him, who are you? And he says, I am the Douglas um which sort of even it's like the self-identifier um and i what's interesting is that he he wouldn't have been the king if i'm if i'm mistaken at this time he was just someone who was and he was very high up he was an earl in scotland but he was a part of every single war that was fought um especially at that the the border the northern border um wonderful so let's meet a a new character um sir richard vernon who is um somehow related to the percys um it's never really like made clear exactly but uh hotspur greets him as my cousin vernon and vernon is like kind of this amazing prophet-like figure that that appears and um I think has some of the most lyrical language in the second half of the play. Um, So here we go, new character.
1: My cousin Vernon, welcome by my soul.
7: Pray God my news be worth a welcome Lord. The Earl of Westmoreland 7,000 strong is marching hitherwards with him Prince John.
1: No harm, what more?
7: And further, I have learned, the king himself in person is set forth, or hitherwards intended speedily, with strong and mighty preparation. He
1: shall be welcome too. Where is his son, the nimble-footed madcap Prince of Wales, (laughs) and his comrades that daft the world aside and bid it pass?
7: All furnished. All in arms, all plumed like ostriches that with the wind baited like eagles have lately bathed, glittering in golden coats like images, as full of spirit as the month of May and gorgeous as the sun at midsummer, wanton as youthful goats, wild as young bulls. I saw young Harry with his beaver on, his creases on his thighs gallantly armed, rise from the ground like feathered mercury, and vaulted with such ease into his seat as if an angel dropped down from the clouds to turn and wind a fiery pegasus and witch the world with noble horsemanship.
1: No more, no more. Worse than the sun in March, this praised. Doth nourish agues, mm, worse than the sun in March. This praise doth nourish agues. Let them come; they come like sacrifices in their trim, and to the fire-eyed maid of smoky war, all hot and bleeding, will we offer them. The mailed Mars shall sit on his, shall on his altars sit, up to the ears in blood. I am on fire to hear this rich reprisal is so nigh and yet not ours come let me taste my horse who is to bear me like a thunderbolt against the bosom of the prince of wales harry to harry shall hot horse to horse meet and ne'er part till one drop down a course ooh that glendower were come
7: there is more news I learned in Worcester, as I rode along, he cannot draw his power this fourteen days. That's the
2: worst tidings that I hear of yet.
4: Ay, by my faith, that bears a frosty sound. What may the king's whole battle reach unto?
7: To thirty thousand.
4: Forty let it
1: be. My father and Glendower being both away, the powers of us may serve so great a day. Come, let us take a muster speedily doomsday is near die all die
0: merrily
2: talk not of dying I am out of fear of death or death's hand for this one half year
0: nice very nice everyone thank you um,
8: I love I wow. love I love Vernon's speech and how gloriously he speaks of of uh, of the troops in contrast with what's coming next oh about. yes I mean I love that disparity
0: it's fabulous. Absolutely. And I think this is the first time that we really get this, um, this mythical, uh, element of Hotspur and Hal that Hal is Mercury and Hotspur is Mars. And also, I think to me, it's like, it's wonderful from a production perspective. If you think about the way in which they fight as well, that Hal is probably much more mercurial as a fighter than Hotspur, who's probably just got like these incredible, years and years of, of of practice
4: um yeah kelly i have to say i think vernon has one of my favorite lines in the play when he comes in with there is more news <laughs> <laughs> right. you know it just feels in like a way. yeah yeah it's 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 just so uh i feel like indicative of the scene in some ways to be like and i mean i guess also especially in this world of like quote unquote fake news <laughs> where people choose to believe facts and how they're going to interpret them. I think that's such an interesting thing with hotspur or to say like, uh, yeah, all these people coming against it's fine. We're, to, we're, we're going to win. We're winners. <laughs> mm. We're the winners. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Coy.
3: I just Sam had brought up the kind of allusions to Henry V and the you know Saint Crispian's Day, but Hotspur has his own little five line Saint Crispian's Day there. Yeah. Uh, Forty, let it be, my father, and our being both away. You know, we're going to do a great time, and it's you no, know, it's. I think uh, I think Henry V did a better version of it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it, it is. It's, it's. I think the problem is that his his he doesn't really rouse the troops so much as he rouses himself earlier. <laughs> When he's like, I'll be Mars up to my ears in blood. I can't wait to fucking meet this guy. Like, I am ready. And then he's like, right, right. We're all going to do this together. <laughs> but he feels it feels like he's like a little too drawn up in his own
3: one-on-one battle. Exactly. It's a great well, example on. of why he's not the, the true king. Right? Well, it's he, the, he's a great warrior, but not the king. It's mm-hmm.
5: the tension that we talked about, I think, last session that we brought up about how being like a man of the people versus a man of the nobility. And I, I think in a lot of ways that um, how later on having done all of that when he's in the muck with the levies and the common soldiers and they all think that they're gonna die in France because he is a man of the people, he can do that rallying cry uh, correctly there, whereas Hotspur is right, the, the, the perfect noble. Um, like, I, I thought of the Iliad the other night when we were doing this, where Achilles is very much the hero of the Iliad, and yet it is Hector that is always brought up as the pinnacle of what it is to be a warrior uh, in that time period. And you're pitting up the angry, romantic, um, fiery, sort of mercurial hero versus like what is actually the proper version of it, and we all learn something watching those two go at. And I think that really uh, with Koi calling it like a mini St. Christmas speech, but it not hitting, you really do get that thing of like, oh, maybe how is onto something by having spent all this time amongst the common people. And maybe that actually finding that balance between nobility and and the respect of the common person is where being the true king sort of like lies.
2: And I also think I've been thinking about what, what Ariana said about um, Hotspur being uh, future oriented. Um, And I think, you know, how maybe is more in the present, right. And Hotspur is pushing towards, towards the future. I think that's supported technically. Um, When Vernon comes in, he starts his speech. And then the next like three or four lines that he has um, are shared lines. Like he starts the second half of a shared line. It really looks to me like what happens is Vernon comes in with this full speech to say, yeah. and Hotspur keeps interrupting him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Hotspur, Hotspur starts saying that then Hotspur starts in, like as soon as he gets to the end of the thought, Vernon comes in with the next piece of news. And I, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> you need funny. to
4: listen to me. Yes, Kelly. <laughs> I think I think this is the, uh, the Don Marr St. Anne's production that sets up the fight between Hal and Hotspur as a boxing match. Is that the one I'm remembering yeah. correctly? Yeah. And I think that the reason I really enjoyed that, I know it's, you know, it's it was very high concept because it was set in a women's prison, but it really does feel, you know, like with the Douglas and Hotspur and even how like it is like WWE, you know? <laughs> like you picture the Douglas coming in with his like giant gold belt and like fanfare and stuff sort of behind him. and And you picture Hotspur like doing this kind of soap opera, fighting you know it's really this like you said Genevieve. it's like gearing themselves up and it's so I mean I hate like it's it's like masturbatory for him because it's really about like this is what's going to gear me up and I'm gonna you know I'm doing this and and yet there's this there's these people watching there's this arena or country full of people saying all right these are the two people that we're kind of invested in the result of this fight and I really appreciated that when I saw it, it it's mm. re- that imagery has really stuck with me because I do think in this modern era, that's kind of, you know, we don't have the Kings and we are, like we were saying before our politicians aren't fighters, but we do sort of see this with celebrity and sports culture and, and where your allegiances lie based on, you know, physical prowess and, and the story behind it. So I think it's sort of fascinating to hear like this, the backstory of like why Hal and Hotspur are doing this fight. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Oh, sorry, Genevieve.
1: Go ahead. The Douglas, the Douglas's last line, I am out of fear of death or death's hand for this one half year. Does he mean like, I'm a, I'm like, Inv- invulnerable for six months? Like, what, is he, I'm what very does he? What does that mean? That's a good yeah. question. Is he like <laughs> I took a potion, or there's a prophecy <laughs> that I'm definitely not going to die for six months? It just seemed very funny. Like this scene
0: feels very funny to me. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I think what he's saying, because out of here, meaning free from fear. I know but like what like what causes him to say what yeah what
4: causes him to say
0: what a what a bomb to drop like what a mic drop to walk out of the room on that by like, the way guys
3: we got six months what the rock i'm not cooking
2: <laughs> i sort of Absolutely. believe him too like yeah. it's it's like yeah he definitely there's a reason like a prophecy or something it feels like i but it's very he cute. is the douglas
5: yeah. <laughs> 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 just can I, can I change just like gears really quickly just to like talk about the the poet? There's the hotspur speech that starts no more, no more. I I think from like a a poetry standpoint is particularly Mm. beautiful in its, um, use of open O sounds and, Mm. um, also just all of the horse imagery that runs through it. Um, I, I, I really like, um, come let me taste my horse is like a great way of saying, getting in the saddle. Like that is such a, an evocative uh, line. I really love um, Harry to Harry shall hot horse to horse is also yeah. an amazing turn. And then um, to hear this rich reprisal is so nigh, but I also hear nay in yeah. there um, and all of these other sort of um really horsey sounding uh, 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 vowels and and consonants and imagery that's going on in there. And I was I just was particularly uh, struck by the poetry of that one speech. Oh, it does, yeah.
1: Yeah, it does feel like a um, like it, it's his best. It's his best comeback to the whole. I mean, fucking pegasus and wet like feathers and birds and golden coats and noble bull like he's like cool this is my version of that but yeah I so agree I love that taste my horse
0: yeah there's I was um I've been putting together the script for Henry V and last night I was working on the scene (laughs) that's the French nobility talking about their horse and it is like really inappropriate it's just like (laughs) There's all this talking about, oh yeah, I'm going to get on my horse just like when my horse is my mistress and I'm like, "Wait a second, what's going on here?" Like it's there is so like the way they talk about horses and then there's this wonderful the dauphin is very braggy and like, "I have the best horse, I wrote my horse a sonnet." And then one of the other frenchmen is like, "Yeah, I heard someone write their mistress the same sonnet." And he's like, "Oh, he was imitating me because my horse is better than his mistress." And then everyone's like, "Yeah, you have a really great horse," <laughs> and it's just like, there's so much weird, like very strange imagery, and 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 it's like, what were their relationships with these horses? My God, is it just um, like, like it.
9: status or something? Like I think of it like yeah. with people with cars and stuff, like people, yes. you know, totally. feminize their cars, like, oh my baby, and like, yeah, maybe it's just you know a nice thinking. horse.
5: Think about every dude with a midlife crisis (laughs) with like a real flash car and that's kind of how they talk about horses a lot throughout Shakespeare
9: Place. It's an extension of your manhood.
3: Yeah, Yeah, Imagine if your Trans Am had a really big horse dick.
9: (laughs) I'm sure they get on that steed and they head off into the sunset and they pick up some pace and they're like, yeah, my life sucks and my wife is not making a great mule tonight,
0: but I feel like I'm one with the machine, you know? (laughs) Well, amazing. Um, also, I would love um, Andrew tell us about the experience of reading Burnin' and and this this guy with to- who just comes in with a totally different perspective on the on the <clears throat> um, on the King's side than we've heard from any of the rebels so far.
7: Yeah, um, somebody mentioned the Iliad just a few minutes ago, and I was thinking it, it does get really Greek in here for a little bit in the last half of this scene uh and i i was struck as i was reading it that vernon's very much a messenger uh figure in the greek sense and that he comes in and his job is to describe something that's happening off screen um and the that language like you said it's also tied in with the prophet thing um and that kind of leads into that great poetic hotspur speech it's like we kick into the uh the um mythical gear for a little while here at the end i really like that
0: absolutely i um i
7: I was trying to look into some research on vernon and and um uh maybe someone else knows a little bit more about this guy but um the only vernon i could find who's kind of related uh was quite young um Mm. at this period and so then he then he starts to seem more like a uh the uh, messenger figure you know coming in on winged uh, shoes and delivering this this imagery that's so evocative
0: a mercury delivering a story about mercury
7: and (laughs) i don't and i um the the naturalistic interpretation is perhaps that he must be almost um in fear and awe having seen the opposing forces to and that's what would drive him to such evocative language. Um, and, and the naturalistic interpretation is supported by the shared lines, as we were talking about. Um, yeah. But I think there's also this mythological and uh, choral, choric um, kind of approach that you could take. Yeah. And with Shakespeare, you can do a little bit of both. It's great. Yes,
0: always both. <laughs> Check both boxes. I love it. Um, and this, I think another function of this sort of rousing imagery is, um, that it's going to be completely undercut by the reality of warfare in our next scene by Falstaff. Um, and it's like, these guys are talking about honor and glory and Falstaff is here talking about these poor starving (laughs) guys that just get, this is the bulk of the army that's fighting they have absolutely no stake in this, and they've just been thrown a weapon, sometimes not. And some of these guys, is, we're gonna find out, don't even have the proper, they don't even have clothing, let alone armor, as they're going in, in into this. And how many of them are coming from the nation's prisons? Um, you know, it kind of, <laughs> It kind of um, makes me think of Arrested Development that ARMY stands for at risk male youth. Um, Right? Uh, There's, 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 they're at risk. Yes, Andrew.
7: I was just going to say, like, which soldiers did Vernon actually see out there? Exactly. That's the point. Glittering in golden coats, right? Yeah. Um, Either he just saw Hal and was like, whoa, that guy's amazing on that horse. (laughs) And then didn't look at the other people at all. Or there's some other... Hal's got his golden boys out there and then Falstaff has his little, yeah, yeah. His yeah, I, little crew.
2: I think we're little supposed crew. to think that Falstaff's crew is the exception to the rule, right? That yeah. like, that like You don't think so, Sam?
5: No, I, I actually think that it, this is like an absolute class thing where you wouldn't see the levies, right? The levies, the, the citizen soldiery, the people who are press gang, that's not if you're of a noble status, you wouldn't even really see them as soldiers so much. It would be all of the knights, all of the upper class people who are pretty much just walking battle tanks on the battlefield and the levy soldiers would kind of just hold one another in the line tactically, whereas everybody else would move around. So it's I think it's really a class thing that what you're getting there, right? It doesn't matter. The ill-dressed, poor ruffians. Both sides have those, but it's 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 the it's the uppers that really matter.
3: Uh, Koi, am I wrong? Yeah, I was I was going to add to that. In terms of the logistics of moving an army, the the cleanest part of it is the front. So when you're when you're at uh, marching, the the highest class is going to be at the front, and everyone who's poor is going to be behind because all of the shit and food that the army is you know, wasting away is going to be smelling, you're going to be leaving this trail of smelly grossness. So so that's where all of the the poor people are going to be. And then you have all this time to set up a battle, right? You take a day or two to move everyone around and get the battle set up. So the way you march is to impress the scouts of the enemy that you're moving towards. Mm. And then you have time to set up camp and prepare your battle in your field so that everyone can be all fair and whatever they want to do.
9: That is interesting. I never knew that because you always assume like, oh, well, you send like, you know, the infantry or whatever in first, but I don't, I don't ever think about military from the aspect of like, well, you got to get people to the location
0: first.
5: (laughs) It's, it's, it's even more complicated in this time period because like the way that we think of war is really sort of like we kind of think, oh, old war is like the revolutionary war. But even then the modes of communication that they had were so much better codified. The, the ability for one even wing of an army to communicate what is going on with another wing of an army on the same battlefield is almost nigh inexistent. Um, I mean, yeah, there's semaphore flags and there's ways that you can do it, but if you really start to go through the histories of warfare at this time, the amount of time that like the number of times that a small branch of an army might pass by a town. And it's just like, you know what, we're actually going to go sack that small village really quickly and then get broken off. It happened all of the time. The history of the Crusades is literally the histories of small little armies breaking off from the main army, sacking a city that they shouldn't sack, getting yelled at for it by the main army, and then rinsing and washing it uh, and competing it. The, the amount of chaos uh, that these battlefields would be in the prep for these battlefields, uh, it, it beggars our imagination sometimes and, and speaks to the top of, like, uh, that scene we just read about, like, well, how can ha- like, how how like Hotspur and all these people not know it's like, how can this be so poorly planned? Like, that's just the norm, right? Yeah. And, and we don't think of it that way. But most wars were conducted in that way at this time period.
0: Yeah, yeah, Koi. Cool.
3: Yeah, I think my favorite example is if you look up on YouTube, you can find football fans like European football fans or soccer fans getting in big fights in um, like parking lots after a game. You just have this mash of people, like hundreds of people just running towards each other. And it's so chaotic and it doesn't really look like anything is going on. And if you take that and you can look it up online and see what it looks like and you take that and you, you multiply it by a thousand and just the amount of people and and the noise and the insanity that there was going on with no- all you have are trumpets and flags to communicate with anyone who can't hear you yell uh it was insane for sure but that was a big tangent yeah Mitch I, yeah I think I think getting back to this question of of who who is Vernon talking
2: about well I I think you're right Sam that I think he specifically asked about Hal and the people around Hal and that absolutely would be the nobility and things like that I think it's also true that we're supposed to think that Falstaff's group of soldiers are are an exception like are particularly egregious. and I think there's a bunch of textual on this in the next yeah yeah. I I think I think both of these things are going going to be true yeah Yeah.
9: I was going to say after Coy said all that my first thought was Well, if it's that chaotic, who are the people who are just like, well, about that? Because if nobody's noticed, and I have a feeling looking at uh, the top top of four too, that I'm going to find my answer there. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's very true. It's very true. Um, And I, I, you know, just to bring in another Shakespeare uh, example of this, you know, at the end of the Battle of Agincourt, the French herald Montjoy appears and Henry V is like, so pissed off. He's like, seriously, you're asking me for ransom again? And he's like, no, no, we, I just want permission that we can go across the field and separate the bodies and take our nobles and bury them. And Henry's like, so do, wait, did we win? <laughs> like, he's like, I don't know if we won or not. And he's like, oh, you won. And he's like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, but there's like this, this total confusion, which we're going to see actually that this. It seems very clear that the king's side won by the end of this, but as we'll see at the top of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, it's entirely not clear um, to the rebels that they have been defeated. Yes, Andrew.
7: The uh, I was just going to say how Shakespeare was so aware of that, uh, uh, um, of the conditions on the ground in war in his day, and it makes it lets us see a little more sense in these lines like there is more news uh that Worcester's not coming for 14 days. And Vernon says, I, I learned this as I was riding along, just by happenstance. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to find out about that. Or like the guy in the last act who comes in and he's like, oh my God, this is happening. And the, oh, yeah. and the king says, Yeah, we learned about that four days ago.
5: Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, those yeah. kinds of <laughs> things that. that
7: just just seem like well, why is that there? It, yeah. it lends itself to that realism. He's actually evoking a real world that seems a little strange to us.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think it carries on that, that um, that's what we start the play off with is we're getting these confused reports about the Welsh rebellion and the Scottish rebellion. Um, and I remember actually when I staged it, I had a cascade of letters um, that opened the, the, the whole show because it was like all of the, and it was like Westmoreland and Lancaster sorting through all of these, this huge amount of news that is contradicting each other. And it's really hard to sort of make decisions when you don't have all the information. But one person that does seem to have gained from this is Falstaff. Um, The last time we saw him, Falstaff had absolutely no money and was very much in debt. And as we're going to find in this next scene, um, he seems to have acquired quite a bit of cash uh, since we last saw him. And I called, um, so I called this first part with him and Bardolph the We Need Snacks for the Road Trip. Um, yeah. And then his wonderful speech as the military industrial complex at its most cynical. Um, so let's, let's get into those. Um, let's get into <clears throat> this
8: uh, other side of warfare. The real side of warfare. True. off. Get thee before to Coventry. Fill me a bottle of sack. Our soldiers shall march through. Will to Sutton Cofield tonight.
7: Will you give me money, Captain?
8: Lay out, lay out.
7: This bottle makes an angel.
8: And if it do, take it for thy labor. And if it make twenty, take them all. I'll answer the coinage. Bid my lieutenant, Pito, meet me at Townsend.
7: I will, Captain. Farewell.
8: <sighs> if I be not ashamed of my soldiers, I am a soused I have misused the king's press damnably. I have got, in exchange of a hundred and fifty soldiers, three hundred and odd pounds. I press me none but good householders. Yeoman sons inquire me out contracted bachelors, such as had been asked twice on the bands, such such a commodity of warm slaves as had leave here to the de- fear the devil as a drum, such as fear the report of a cal- caliber, worse than a struck fowl or a hurt wild duck. I impressed me none but such toasts and butter with hearts in their bellies, no bigger than pen's heads, and they have brought their services. And now my whole charge consists of ancients, corporals, lieutenants, gentlemen of companies, slaves ragged as Lazarus in the painted cloth where the glutton's dogs licked his sores and such as indeed were never soldiers, but discarded, unjust servingmen, younger sons to younger brothers, revolted tapsters and ostlers, trade fallen, the cankers of a calm world and a long peace, ten times more dishonourable, ragged than an old-faced ancient. And such have I to fill up the rooms of them that have bought their about their services, that you would think that I had a hundred and fifty tattered prodigals lately come from swine keeping, from eating draught and husks. A mad fellow met me on the way and told me I had unloaded all the gibbets and pressed the dead bodies. No eye hath seen such scarecrows. I'll not march through Coventry with them. That's flat. And the villains march wide betwixt the legs, as if they had dives on. For indeed, I had most of them out of prison. (laughs) Ah, There's but a shirt and a half in all my company, and the half-shirt is wrapped and stacked together and thrown over the shoulder like a herald's coat without sleeves and the shirt to say the truth stolen from my host at St. Albans or the red nosed innkeeper of Daventry ah, but that's all one you'll find linen enough on every hedge.
5: how now blown jack how now
8: quilt ah, what how how now mad wag what a devil dost thou in Warwickshire my good lord of Westmoreland, I cry you mercy. I thought your honor had already been at Shrewsbury.
7: Faith, Sir John, tis more than time that I were there, and you too. But my powers are there already. The king, I can tell you, looks for us all. We must away all night.
8: Never fear me. I am as vigilant as a cat to steal cream.
7: I think to steal cream
5: indeed, for thy theft have already made thee butter. But tell me, Jack, whose fellows are these that come after?
8: Mine, Hal, mine.
5: I did never see such pitiful rascals.
8: Good enough to toss food for powder. Food for powder. They'll fill a pit as well as better. This man, mortal man, mortal man.
7: Aye, but Sir John, methinks they are exceedingly poor and bare, too beggarly.
8: Faith for their poverty i know not where they had that and for their bareness i am sure they never learned that of me
5: no i'll be sworn unless you call three fingers in the ribs bare but sirrah, make haste percy is already in the field
8: what is the king encamped
7: he is sir john i fear we shall stay too long well
8: the latter end of a fray and the beginning of a feast fits a dull fighter and a keen guest
0: lovely food for powder food for powder wow that's yeah. definitely one way to to look at warfare
5: I think. they'll fill a pit as well as better
0: <laughs> i mean it's younger true. sons
3: of younger brothers i loved
0: yeah yeah there's, there's a lot of, as with always with um, Falstaff, there's a lot of archaic language um, in the prose. One of my favorite is at the top when you say, I'm a soused gurnet. If I not be a uh, soused gurnet here means like a pickled fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, And I love all of Falstaff's. We've we've gotten a couple so far. Like, I'm a shot and herring. I'm a bunch of radish. Like, just
8: like all Poast of the- and butter. <laughs> toast yeah. and butter, Yeah. <laughs> such references to just natural, um, natural part of life, eating, drinking, screwing around. Yeah, Yeah. it's very base. base. But a a totally different, um,
0: one of my favorite things to do, uh, nerdy things to do is to sort of track the imagery of a character because I think it tells a lot about the world in which that character inhabits. And obviously like the imagery that Hotspur uses is entirely different from the imagery that Falstaff uses. And then sometimes as characters change, their imagery starts getting corrupted. Like for example, Iago uses so much animal imagery from the beginning and beasts and Othello never uses any, has any animal references in the first half of the play. And after his mind is poisoned, he starts saying goats and monkeys. He starts like taking over it's like Iago's imagery has like infected his brain. Um, and I feel th- th- the same way about, about this. Like we, we get the, all of these, um, we get starvation, we get food references, we get um, d- an old phased ancient, uh, which here means like a very threadbare old flag. All of these things the people coming out of prison, walking as if they still have the leg irons on um and death really which is it's not a glorious death as the doomsday is near die all die merrily, that we that we heard in the previous scene but this is a really this is like death by starvation and death by just shoving a whole bunch of people with absolutely no fighting experience
8: into the vanguard and you know. i i do have a question his last line false deaths is written in poetry not prose yeah why yeah. and it's so it i
0: think if it were in op it would be the latter end of a fest um so it would rhyme with guest um, uh, so that it's like a little rhyming couplet at the end it. there i think uh i, it's just I wrote that as like I wish I was at a party like, didn't <laughs> I really really wish I was at a party and not,
2: not here, here.
8: Yeah, elsewhere yeah, yeah.
0: yeah didn't
2: Falstaff also Breaking. close yeah yeah didn't Falstaff also close his last scene with a couplet oh I, yeah I, I, which is almost interesting every scene
0: ends yeah, with a couplet yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah almost every scene and sometimes we have competing rhyming couplets which is my favorite when like one character thinks they're gonna end it and then the other one's like no 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 I've got a better rhyming couplet we'll, we'll end with mine." Um, but yeah, like we, we, we had the, um, uh, Douglas ended our last scene with a rhyming couplet. I'm After Hotspur
2: ended it, you're totally right. Yeah, sort There's of. like yeah. competing,
0: competing rhyming couplets
2: frequently. <laughs> but it's interesting for Falstaff because Falstaff's so prosy yeah, uh, yeah. when Falstaff yeah. does it. Boy, yeah. why I
0: noted it. Yeah. 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 There's, um, but Falstaff also just to say that Falstaff's prose, is so different than most other characters prose that it is there is a there's a bounce to it there's a rhythm there's a lot of uh rep there's a huge amount of word repetition um i another thing i like to track is how many times words get repeated and sort of turned inside out and Falstaff almost more than any character in this play will take a word and then flip it around and and bounce it and and sort of play with it um you know as we we sometimes talk about uh characters having tennis matches with words but I feel like (laughs) Falstaff is just like hitting the the ball with his own racket quite quite a bit and another character usually uh, um big there usually tends to be a character in each play that does that I we just finished King John last week and the bastard definitely does that with words just plays around with words and and juggles them and repeats them and yeah Uh,
8: i have a question it's obviously a soliloquy there's no one on stage who's he talking to himself to the audience to whom
0: i mean i am of the opinion i very much uh subscribe to the john barton uh wisdom on soliloquies that they never work unless you're sharing with the audience I really firmly believe that. Um, I think if it becomes navel gazing, it's mm. not interesting for us, but if it's if it's an opportunity to share with an okay. audience and sharing the thought, I think it usually works. And I think this is like, this is one of those classic, I mean, it's, it's a classic soliloquy. And then it's like, it's almost Richard III kind of soliloquy, yeah, yeah. like this well, is what I've I done, this is what I'm doing. But there is I think there's a lot of fun and a lot of glee to be found with you guys. Check out how much money I have. And, you know, in in our production, I think I mentioned like our fall staff just as soon as Bardolph left, just took the took a, a napkin off of this huge chicken that he had in his in his wagon and just started eating as he was talking about it. But I think this this is so essential to set up for your your soliloquy in act five mm-hmm. with the honor speech. Because as, as I sort of discovered, it is funny, the honor speech, but there's something deeply cynical and very dark about it and about being faced with the reality of, of death in that moment. Um, yeah, Sam.
5: Well, sort of on two things. I, I think this is sort of the point where Falstaff kind of takes a little bit of a grim turn because like I do think that this soliloquy is very funny like I I do think it's very funny but it is very 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 much gallows humor um, into it and I am struck by sort of in in our last conversation of the last act with this idea of like yes I do think that they are a particularly poor pressed company that's been put together but the humor for this for the audience must be like if you're a groundling, you're like, I know this guy, this guy pressed me into combat once. Like, I know this, this is, it's funny because like people in the audience would have known this person. And I think about that echoing through history and like maybe a month ago, there was a TikTok video that blew up on Twitter Um, from a guy in the army who went around asking it was just him going to other members of his company being like if you could say something to your recruiting officer what would you say and it's literally just him asking this question and young men like babies going fuck you like it's just all of this anger directed over to the thing that they could tell their recruiting and wow this is the Shakespearean version of that, but told from the recruiter's point yeah. of view. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's yeah. so much of the same gag. Um, and then from a language standpoint, I'm again, really shocked about these three really clear sentences that are right at the top. The, 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 what can make them complicated is the archaic language in it, like the Seuss Gurnet. But that first, if I, if I be not ashamed of my soldiers, I am a Seuss Gurnet, period. I have misused the King's press damnably, period. I have gotten exchange for 150 soldiers, 300 and odd pounds, period. Yeah. There's no, like, there's a joke in there, but like, those are some of the most clear, direct statements that I can think of almost in this entire play, other than how like, I shall be
2: more myself now.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Mitch, yeah.
2: They're also a summary of the entire speech. In yes. fact, the speech could be those three lines. It could be, then, right. Yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> no. Kelly. Uh, just going back a little bit to the what we were talking about in the previous scene, and I will fully preface this by saying that my rudimentary understanding of military history comes a lot from you know documentaries on the History Channel and Jane Austen novels. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, Falstaff is a part of the nobility, just a very, very low part, correct? He's yeah. the sir, you know? He's a knight, uh, he is in fact a knight. A knight. <laughs> so he, you know, he is part of this hierarchy, the lower part of the hierarchy. But, you know, I know that it was the job of the nobility to, to they say, like, we'll raise 10,000 troops. You know, they they were exactly as you were saying, uh, Mitchell and, and Coy, like they were the recruiting officers. But at the same time, at least at some point in British history, soldiers had to pay for a commission. Like, you know, now we sign up and the army gives you a salary and sometimes a signing bonus and maybe you get to go to school for free afterward. But then you had to pay to be a soldier to a certain point. And I'm sure there's all of these prisoners that were not being paid, you know, obviously yeah. like they're not paying because they're literally just being taken in, in there, you know, from, from one sort of indentured servitude-esque thing to another or one prison to another um but it makes sense to me that Falstaff would suddenly have money if that is the case you know if he's raising these people and they have to to sort of pay to be in the army but I'm not sure exactly at what point that happens so once again I'm I'm, you know Mitchell might know the difference so
2: well yeah I I don't know the necessarily all the broader context but what he says I think if we if we like really get deep in Parse's language here um it he initially went and recruited basically people who he determined didn't want to go to war, yes, right? Like people who exactly. were about to get married, people who had some money. And then it seems to me, um, and Ariana, you can confirm this. I think there's a mechanism to buy out of your service. Yes. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So then these people who he knew didn't want to go to war. Got the opportunity to pay to not go to war. Yes, exactly. Um, and so then, yeah. From that, I guess that money maybe was was that money supposed to go to pay the
0: soldiers then,
2: or like was supposed, supposed to-, to go to
0: the war effort? But he just
4: pocketed it. Himself. Yeah, of course. He just pockets <laughs> yeah. it
2: and then gets these
8: yeah wow yeah. but andrew. it also makes sense oh sorry to, go ahead like
4: Kelly. some oh sorry it also makes sense too that like someone who is that low in the in the totem pole of the nobility like these are the people he can find yeah <laughs> you know he's not he doesn't have these like massive estates where he's like oh all my farmers come with yeah. me yeah. you know he's like oh, i gotta get the people from the pub man in yeah. the prisons and, <laughs> and yeah. The prison
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
4: andrew and then lynn
7: <laughs> i was just gonna say uh as usual, Falstaff's running a scam, mm-hmm. um, and that he probably knows how this all works. And I think he aimed for the uh, the people who were well-off enough to be able to buy out. Mm-hmm. And then he happens to know the really low-class cap- people that he can drag out uh, and who don't have a choice. And so he ends up making a profit. Um but I, I think that must be intentional. He knows how all this stuff works, absolutely. even though he's clearly ashamed.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, Lynn? I'm just struck at the, all the different perspectives of war in this play, from the Crusades and the weariness of it that opened the play, and then to Lady Percy's speech about you know um, Hotspur's dreams and his crying out, and all of that technical her her knowledge of of the war and then vernon's depiction in that um kind of mythical way of war and then you get down into the dirt with this um with falstaff and leading and then (laughs) being led into actual battle and it's just a just a very interesting journey through the play absolutely and as we're gonna you know
0: there's uh, I I think what makes this why this play works so well for me and why um, this play somehow manages I think to to tickle audiences in a way that like Richard II does not Um, just in terms of there is an almost equal amount of verse and prose we're seeing the people from the lowest that are coming from the least amount of privilege and the people who are the most privileged, sometimes in the same scene. And something about that contrast um, really gives this sense of, we're looking at the whole world um, in this play. Um, Yeah, Sam.
5: Um, I just looked it up to double check, but I, I do think that this is actually kind of important to that sort of different views of war thing. Knighthoods aren't hereditary. So Falstaff had to have at one point in time done something to have earned that knighthood um, Mm -hmm. because it is not a hereditary title. And I believe that Falstaff is one of the older characters who is in the show just by years. I mean, I know that historically Hotspur was older than Hal, Mm -hmm. but in this play they're supposed to be the same age. And if you look through those different viewpoints of war right you have the king at the top who's tired of it as the head of state you know it's there's a, there is a right war that we could be fighting, but I we're, it's so tiring. then you have all of the young people who tend to have a little bit more of a hot blooded, this is glorious attitude towards it. You have the two other characters from Wales and Scotland who are mad people who live in blood pretty much. (laughs) You know, that is everything about them is about being covered in blood. And then you have Falstaff who is a sir implying that he earned it at some point in time, is a knight, is a military person, but at this age has become so, either grim of it or has lived so long that they see the uh, uh, the cynicalness of it. And now warfare is not a vehicle for honor. It's no, it is just, it is a place where you put people's bodies in pits and I make my money. That's what, and it's the most cynical old view of war here. And I think that that's interesting coming from a character whose least direct implication was at some point in time, they had to have been heroic right yeah,
0: i mean it's it's worth noting that there is another knight that we get to know in this play and that's sir walter blunt who is completely different from um falstaff and who is constantly referred to as this valiant good sir walter you know and is one of the few characters we will see die on stage actually in in act 5
3: yeah coy yeah i i i guess what's i'm i'm reminded of the fact that um Shakespeare is writing kind of at the birth of the merchant class which we're living mm-hmm. in the late stages of <laughs> now where you know the merchant class is now the highest status class in our society um, but he's writing about a period where I think it's a little bit before the end of hereditary like her- heraldry and and aristocracy but definitely in in the, the time he's writing it's a lot more in its prime but because he's writing Uh, backwards you know he's also looking at I think in his society they're already seeing the the corruption of the heraldry and of the 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 medieval kind of feudal system like what you're describing Kelly of having land and having all these presents peasants that you can do something with that's if you actually had land and by the time the by the time the feudal system has like been watered down over generations and all the land and titles have been distributed through families for a hundred years, you end up having a title with no land, which means you have these weird obligations from a hundred years ago, but you don't. So it's the kind of the, the, the system is falling apart in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is in Shakespeare's time, you know, there's a, this is the birth of the middle class in a certain way of there. There's, there's these people that don't have hereditary titles, but that have are beginning to acc- accrue a huge amounts of money and we'll are reach. becoming a kind of rival class to the aristocracy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Um, and I, <laughs> then Hal comes in with Westmoreland. And I, I I think it's very, I think Falstaff is so eager for more glory and more, more, um, more of a glorified title, more like a shinier, uh, badge because you know Hal comes in he says oh how now mad wag what are what does thou do in Warwickshire and then it's like he sees West Berlin and he immediately switches to you right which is the the formal and he's like oh, you my lord oh you 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 know and it's like he he suddenly has to completely change his um, it's one of those wonderful moments where you see him call Hal the crown prince a mad wag and then immediately see that there is a very high nobleman present and he oh I cry you mercy and it's like he just has this linguistic transformation within one speech which I just I love um and yeah the good enough to toss they'll fill a pit is a better um and I think it's so important that we go we have that huge contrast of the Hotspur Douglas Worcester and Vernon scene and messenger (laughs) um that we just had and then now this is the flips it's like this is the flip side of war sort of like the transition between the rebellion being plotted to the truck stop right from act one to the top of act two um yeah and then we go back to the rebels and have a very fiery scene and let's um we'll we'll see there are two factions um and two different thoughts on um what they should be doing with their, with their limited number of soldiers.
2: We'll fight with him tonight. It may not be. You give him then advantage.
7: Not a whit.
1: Why say you so? Looks he not for supply?
7: So do we.
4: His is certain. Ours is doubtful. Good cousin, be advised. Stir not tonight.
7: Do not, my lord.
2: You do not counsel well. You speak it out of fear and cold heart.
7: Do me no slander, Douglas, by my life, and I dare well maintain it with my life. If well-respected honour bid me on, I hold as little counsel with weak fear As you, my lord, or any Scot that this day lives. Let it be seen to-morrow in the battle which of us fears.
2: Yea, or
7: to-night? Content.
1: To-night, say I.
7: Come, come, it may not be. I wonder much being men of such great leading as you are, that you foresee not what impediments drag back our expedition, certain horse of my cousin Vernon's are not yet come up. Your uncle Worcester's horses came but today, and now their pride and mettle is asleep, their courage with hard labor tame and dull, that not a horse is half the half of himself. So
1: are the horses of the enemy, in general journey baited and brought low, the
4: better part of ours are full of rest. The number of the king exceedeth ours. For God's sake, cousin, stay till all come in. I so, come Oh, I, I, I just
0: wanted to say, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for comedy that they're all like fighting and fighting and then the actual enemy walks in and they all have to kind of scramble to like, look respectable <laughs> and then, like, oh, um, we weren't fighting. Everything's fine. So anyway, then in comes Blunt, and we will continue. I'm so sorry, Brittany.
9: <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. And Sometimes you stop. Um, <clears throat> I come with gracious offers from the king, if you vouchsafe me hearing and respect.
1: Welcome, Sir Walter Blunt, and would to God you were of our determination. Some of us love you well, and even though some envy your great deservings and good name, because you are not of our quality, but stand against us like an enemy.
9: God defend, but still I should stand so, so long as out of limit and true rule you stand against anointed majesty. But to my charge, the king hath sent to know the nature of your griefs, and whereupon you conjure from the breast of civil peace such bold hostility, teaching his duteous land audacious cruelty. If that the king have in any way your good deserts forgot which he confesseth to be manifold he bids you name your griefs and with all speed you shall have your desires with interest and pardon absolute for yourself and these heron
1: misled by your suggestion the king is kind and well we know the king knows at what time to promise when to pay my father and my uncle and myself did give him that same royalty he wears. And when he was not six and 20 strong, sick in the world's regard, wretched and low, a poor unminded outlaw sneaking home, my father gave him welcome to the shore. And when he heard him swear and vow to God, he came but to be Duke of Lancaster, to sue his livery and beg his peace with tears of innocency and terms of zeal, my father, in kind heart and pity moved, swore him assistance and performed it too. Now, when the lords and barons of the realm perceived Northumberland did lean to him, the more and less came in with cap and knee. Met him in boroughs, cities, villages, attended him on bridges, stood in lanes, laid gifts before him, proffered him their oaths, gave him their airs as pages, followed him even at the heels in golden multitudes. He pleasantly, as greatness knows itself, stepped me a little higher than his vow made to my father while his blood was poor upon the naked shore at Ravenspur, and now forsooth takes on him to reform some certain edicts and some straight decrees that lie too heavy on the commonwealth, cries out abuses, seems to weep over his country's wrongs, and by this face, this seeming brow of justice, did he win the hearts of all that he did angle for proceeded further, cut me off the heads of all the favorites that the absent king in deputation deputation left behind him here when he was personal in the Irish war. But I came not to hear this, then to the point. In short time after, he deposed the king. Soon after that, deprived him of his life. And in the neck of that, tasked the whole state. To make that worse, suffered his king his kinsman March, who is, if every owner were well placed, indeed his king, to be engaged in Wales, there without ransom to lie forfeited. Disgraced me in my happy victories, sought to entrap me by intelligence, raided mine uncle from the council board, enraged, dismissed my father from the court, broke oath on oath, committed wrong on wrong. And in conclusion, drove us to seek out this head of safety and withal to pry into his title, the which we find too direct, too indirect for
9: long continuance. Shall I return this answer
1: to the king? Not so, Sir Walter. We'll withdraw a while. Go to the king and let there be in pawn some surety for a safe return again. And in the morning early, shall mine uncle bring him our purposes. So farewell. I would you
9: would accept of grace and love maybe so we shall pray god you do
0: wow what a great scene Uh, amazing um I just wanted to say that I think in order for the scene to to work you almost have to set this up from act one that there is a relationship between blunt and hotspur um one of the first things we hear about blunt is that he was fighting with hotspur in the last time so to me that means that like this this moment has to be a big moment I think for both of these characters the last time they saw each other they were brothers in arms and now they're on opposite sides and I think that
6: um
0: to me what's so interesting about this moment is that is that little Hotspur speech um I wish you were on our side to me it's like it's just like very touching somehow um But wow, like what a growth we've seen in Hotspur just in terms of articulating his grievances. Like, if you compare this to Act One, Scene Three, like this is a very well put together rhetorical argument of grievances. And an even better one comes right after it, where he's like, point one, point two, point three, we've got nine points. You know, it's just like rapid, rapid succession. Um, He just keeps getting better and better. And it's, it seems to me like he's learning from Worcester about how to construct political arguments and that that is such a turnaround to go from the fighting that the rebels have at the top to Hotspur deciding, okay, tomorrow morning, you know, that's a huge decision. Anyway, those are just my sort of thoughts. Please uh, tell me what, what your impressions were, all of you uh, doing this scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say this scene feels like the lesson learned from act three when Hotspur finally listens. I think mm. it's Worcester just to to someone saying, you gotta chill. Yeah. And we see that he learned the lesson, which I love the line break of it in, in the very, at the very end. And in the morning, early shall mine uncle bring him our purposes. It's like, he's finally learned like, yes, he needs to talk for two straight pages, yeah. not let anyone else speak. But also he's like, <laughs> And you're a smarter choice to go and do this. Like, yeah, I just vanted at you. We're not going to say that. He's going to say it better tomorrow, which is huge. I feel like Hotspur at the beginning of this play, well, he would have just like rode alone on his horse and tried to kill the king himself. Like he would have yeah. just
0: completely lost rationality. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Absolutely. Mitch?
2: He also just made, made the decision, first of all, for the full group right? Yeah. In front of Blunt, like exercise some leadership. And he made the opposite decision of what he was advocating for exactly. before Blunt came on stage. Yeah. yeah. Which is, yeah, I agree with the, all the growth stuff said about him. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Quite interesting too what you were saying. Oh, sorry. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead, Jen. We're, we're just going to
3: co- pop in. Sorry. Well,
1: I just was, I was just thinking what you said about him and Blunt and, and that it, it's also a moment of really per- like, I, it makes me wonder if that was a calculated decision to send blunt because someone mm. in the king's camp knows this will tangle Hotspur. This is not just somebody he doesn't care about. This will confuse it because he's, you know, they used to be aligned. I don't know.
4: absolutely
6: uh, coy.
3: Yeah, I just think it's also also I'm always interested in who's on stage not talking, mm. and how are they influence the speakers? Um, you know, Douglas. Being there, how is he influencing Hotspur making this decision? And how many moments are there between people not talking and people talking? I don't know I, that's always interesting to me because when we read this type of stuff, we often forget, all oh, right, there's four more people. yeah scene.
2: <laughs> that's really striking to me that it really does read like a two-person scene between Blunt and Hotspur, which I think mm-hmm. speaks to the importance of that relationship and also speaks to, Yeah, that Hotspur steps into the leading role. And there are all of these very powerful men standing behind him, presumably, right? Uh, But they almost, I wonder if it's striking in that they don't influence his decision more, Mm. you know, that he's aware of them, but that he steps up and has this two person scene in front of them.
9: I Are, do think that yeah. blunt speech when he comes in is very like indicative of the fact that he has an audience, you know, it's not really personalized. It seems like he may have even prepared it. Maybe he was anticipating being met with the typical, you know, hot spork, you know, energy and all of that jazz. Cause it does seem like he came in there with sort of a solid plan. Um, so yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, And I think there is definitely something, I mean, he turns against Douglas who seems to be his most natural ally. And I remember when we were staging this, uh, the Douglas just was like, fuck this. And like walked off stage after, after, um, after Hotspur said, and in the morning early and Douglas was like, oh, I'm out. (laughs) Like, (laughs) he was just like, I'm going to go paint myself blue. Like I'm out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I, I do think there, there is, um, Yeah, the relationships. I remember (laughs) one of my favorite things that Robin, who's our our dramaturg and and, and co-founder of the International Shakespeare Center Santa Fe, has said frequently is one of her pet peeves when the history plays get staged is it's very clear to her that these are directed by men who have never been in the army before. And this Mm -hmm. this is like me being in the army by directing these battle scenes. And that frequently we lose the human story when we get to the battle scenes. And so I remember actually devoting extra time to these scenes with the rebels in rehearsal, because to me, what's, what's so fascinating about the ending is these very, very specific and changing relationships within the rebellion. I think it's really interesting that we don't actually get to know the other side of this very well. We don't get to know the relationship between Westmoreland and the King and Lancaster and Blunt. We don't have a scene like this with them. We get a tiny little moment at the top of act five before Worcester and Vernon come in. And then a tiny moment where they're like, okay, everyone go to their charge, but we don't get to, to know them as, as humans. And I think that's kind of deliberate um, because the, the last people we're left with before the battle, the people that we've seen and have an emotional investment in are actually the rebels. Um, Hal kind of disappears for a while. Falstaff has that great scene and then disappears for a while. And I think that's, that's very um, dramaturgically important that we, we, we see these, the rebels as humans, as, as humans that argue with each other and that are very complicated. And I think that's kind of part of the genius of this play and why I'm, I'm so very fond of these two scenes with the rebels in this mm-hmm. act is to me it sets up it, it the for the audience are, the stakes are so much higher when these characters begin to die um, because we've seen them in these incredibly emotional um moments and how mm-hmm. important northumberland is that's the other thing why isn't he here
6: that's what? was that's what strikes me in going back to that scene in act one and how northumberland is kind of playing both sides and trying to calm Hotspur down and and now he's not here and it's just like this huge absent presence you know Oh,
0: and Mortimer too I feel like there's yeah. a huge absence it's like he's the one that they're supposed to be putting on the throne where the fuck is he like yeah. shouldn't he be leading the charge to put himself on the throne
1: yeah I mean he's just to clarify like on 88 um in Hotspur speech to make that worse, suffered his kinsman March, who if every owner were well placed, indeed his king. Right. That's Mortimer, right? It that is. March, I actually
0: again. I remember changing it to Mortimer. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Suffered Mortimer. I mean, um because it is he's the Earl of March, but right, um right. It, it's there's so many names and there's so many names of people that we don't meet in this text, it gets very confusing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting cuz like Lynn was saying, it's like where are these two people yeah. and it also feels like such a drive for Hotspur because so much of this long ass story about what his father did for the king is about I'm defending my father. My father my father was good to you and you fucked him and so I am here to avenge my father and now he's literally not here so I'm yeah. I'm doubly pressed and my brother-in-law like you have wronged my family and again, comes back to my, the thing I was thinking in act one with Hotspur, which is like, he has a lot of faults. He has a lot of selfish um, instincts, but he also, his idea of like right and wrong is so rooted in like blood and family. And like, there's something about him that I admire so much that he will go to the mat for his dad and his brother-in-law, like, in a in a kind of selfless way, and and not always the smartest way, but he he is like that is unbreakable, which is really cool. Absolutely, I totally but agree.
6: there's also the you know the this chance of you know blunt coming in saying you know saying hey let's work things out before we go through this, and the offer is just <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> <you> true. <know. laughs>
0: Yeah, denied. <laughs> do not. Yeah. yeah.
5: Well, I mean, thinking about like the Iliad again, it's that same sort of, it's that same sort of dynamic of, of, of who do you feel for, or at least who did I feel for when I've read it? It was Hector. And all the times that you are with the Trojan side, like Agamemnon, Achilles, they're a bunch of dicks. Like they're a bunch <laughs> of angry dicks who are, all yelling at each other and you're like, this coalition is built on nothing really. And then you have the other side of it where there is a nobility to it. And and I think that what's interesting is sort of talking about the original sin of Richard II dying and the seven vials of holy blood. And there is a sense here that, um, you know, the side that we think that we're supposed to be rooting for, Hal and Falstaff and, and, and the side of the established sort of state Um, Hotspur is trying to put the technically the anointed person on the throne, right? Mm -hmm. Hotspur is trying to, in this particular moment, um, you know, undo that original sin by trying to get succession back to where it is supposed to be. And so I think it is really important that we see them and they're, they're, they're the heroes. They're the foil that eventually, the characters of this play through the course of the next two play will learn from, right? Achilles learns from Hector and Priam about what it means to be a good warrior at the end of that play when the body is returned to his father. And I feel like that sort of echo is a happening again here where the characters on the side that we think that we should be rooting for are actually learning from these experiences and turning into those characters that we'll be rooting for. But that's why I think it is really important that we stick with the rebels for the same reason why, you know, we stick and we see what's going on inside of Troy during the Iliad. Um, because in a lot of ways, they're not the hero heroes, but they're the, the heroes of our heart. Like, I, I have no other better, like, <laughs> yeah. way of, they are the moral, they are, they are the moral heroes, if not our uh, protagonists, you know? Yeah.
1: Absolutely, I love that too because um, you you use the word anointed, and it, when we were reading through it, and Brittany said you stand against anointed majesty, and then immediately but to my charge, I was like, yeah, because Hotspur is about to jump you for claiming yeah. that. Like that, I feel like that word is where their friendship or their like bond broke. Because like mm. you've chosen to believe this person's anointed, and I fundamentally believe this person's anointed, and that like,
0: yeah. I just I, yeah, that was such a powerful moment cause it's such a huge pivot in the speech. It's great. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's a wonderful point. Absolutely. Uh, Mitch, did you have something as well?
2: Um, well, I was just, yeah, I like this idea of like, what is Hal going to take for what is Hal going to learn moving on from this? Mm-hmm. And I think we're building towards a place of Hal V Hotspur. And so I do think, uh, yeah, it's important to stay with the rebels. I think it's specifically important to sort of build up Hotspur and to like let us understand the the beauty in in how Hotspur approaches it because we've seen him go yell and scream and, and throw tantrums uh sort of throughout the play and I think I think it's important for us to understand the the purity that is sort of in him he's sort of in the wrong play right like everybody around him's a politician and he's he's got this purity that sort of nobody else has. And so he, it it makes sense that he is sort of the one at the end of it that can't exist
7: in this play anymore
2: that has to die. And then because I do think fundamentally the plays about Hal and moving on, like, what does Hal draw from that? Sorry. Go go ahead, Sam. Go ahead. Oh, no, just a
5: really interesting juxtaposition to King John, which you're also doing right now where the character who, who is not, who is the only non-politician in that play who is constantly like, who is a character who feels like they are in a different play than every yeah. other character. <laughs> that play ends with the bastard holding pretty much like England in his hands, being like, this next king is going to be the great. But it's, it's the opposite of this, whereas we're, like, we're going to reject Hotspur by the end. He cannot exist in this world. It is the exact opposite ending in King John where England is now going to rally around sort of the non-politician. And so it just, the the way that you uh, pointed that out, Mitch, it's just the ability to not exist in this play, whereas in the other one, the entire play actually ends up bending around that one character.
0: Absolutely, and I think there is there is something you know sort of. There's been a lot of sh- critical analysis of saying that like when Hotspur dies, it's the death of chivalry, and I think that's that's kind of right in a sense that Hotspur belongs, even though he's always forward looking. Hotspur belongs to an archaic age, an archaic idea about who fighters are, and I think, though again, it's because of Shakespeare, it's never one thing, even though he's very forward looking in a way he belongs to a dying breed. And the politician king that is Bolingbroke, who is obsessed with the past and constantly going over, he is actually the way of the future. He's actually much more the way that European politics is going to go for the next couple centuries, of very much being careful with words, of Knowing when to appear and when not to appear—it's—it's it's very much there's a lot of Machiavellian um, uh, influence into this, and and there's there is a a long—I I must say I don't quite agree with it—but a, a very long tradition of people playing Hal as the perfect Machiavellian prince, um, but which I think doesn't quite work <laughs> in this because there is something you know I think what we 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 have a very negative connotation of, of the word Machiavellian. But actually what he was really saying was, it's better to be both, but if you're gonna be one, it's better to be both loved and feared. But if you're gonna be one, it's better to be feared only, right? It's, you're dropping
5: the end said. of that quote. Yeah. No, you're, you're dropping the end of that quote. And this, this is like a sticking point for me. It's better to be feared then loved, but never hated, is actually the full right,
0: right, sentence, right, right, right. and
5: everybody drops the never hated never when that hated. is actually the most important clause in that entire sentence. Yeah, <laughs> so.
0: absolutely, and uh, well, and that goes to and get, that goes to my point that um, I think when I've seen, I, I saw one production where there was the how was very much using everyone and there was no love there. And it just didn't work for me because there were no stakes to any of the interactions. There was no, he didn't have to make a decision. He had already made the decision, you know and there was no affection in in any of the scenes with Falstaff and the play just felt so cold where I think the play is, is the play that contains both the doomsday is near, die all, die merrily and Falstaff in a few lines is gonna say, give me life. And I think that is the sort of beautiful antithesis
8: that this play holds. D. Oh, no, I was, as, as, I, as we were talking about Hotspur, what came to my mind is Don Quixote. And I, you know, I, I, I just see them both as not necessarily charging at windmills, but being so confirmed and affirmed about who they are and what is right and what is not right. I just, I just saw that parallel. I That's just want to make, yeah, I
0: yeah, make that. Which point. is a very old idea about knighthood and, yeah, and like yeah.
8: honor and chivalry is.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. parodied beautifully <laughs> in, in Don Quixote.
2: And, and Don Quixote is also somebody who who doesn't fit, right? Yeah, like the exactly. world has moved on. He's from an old time. And as we yeah. talk about what Hal takes, it, it's it's very funny. I'm now thinking of like Hotspur Falstaff Henry, his father, right? Like if he learns the politics. From Henry, I mean, these are going to be oversimplifications, but but there's something about this chivalric old idea that he takes from Hotspur, and then something about interacting with commoners he takes from Falstaff. I haven't fully thought through the Falstaff Henry versions, but I, I do think that that's sort of right. That then he emerges in Henry V and takes over France as with the sort of all of these things that he's taken from all of these people.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Many father figures, many brother figures to to sort of take from. Um, and then we have our, our, our final scene in Act 4, which is two brand new characters that we never see again um, that very much represent the ecclesiastical side of the kingdom that has mostly sided with the rebels, which to me is very interesting um, that the church is siding with the rebels over the established uh, king. So here we have one of the two archbishops in the land. Talking with a guy named Sir Michael, whose name he really likes to say a lot.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Hi, good Sir Michael, bear the sealed brief with winged haste to the Lord Marshal, this to my cousin Scrope, and all the rest to whom they are directed. If you knew how much they do import, you would make haste.
3: My good Lord, I guess their tenor.
2: Like enough you do. Tomorrow, good Sir Michael, is a day wherein the fortune of 10,000 men must bide the touch. For, sir, at Shrewsbury, as I am truly given to understand, the King with mighty and quick-raised power meets with Lord Harry. And I fear, Sir Michael, what with the sickness of Northumberland, whose power was in the first proportion, and what with Owen Glendower's absence thence, who with them was a rated sinew too, and comes not in, or ruled by prophecies. I fear the power of Percy is too weak to wage an instant trial with the king.
3: My, my good lord, you need not fear. There is Douglas and Lord Mortimer. No, Mortimer is not there. But there is Mordake, Vernon, Lord Harry Percy, and there is my lord of of Worcester, and a head of gallant warriors, noble gentlemen. And so there
2: is. But yet the king hath drawn the special head of all the land together, The Prince of Wales, Lord John of Lancaster, The noble Westmoreland, and warlike Blunt, And many more co-rivals, and dear men of estimation and command in arms.
3: Doubt not, my lord. They shall be well opposed.
2: I hope no less, yet needful tis to fear, And to prevent the worst, Sir Michael, speed. For if Lord Percy thrive not, Ere the king dismiss his power he means to visit us, for he hath heard of our confederacy, and tis but wisdom to make strong against him. Therefore, make haste. I must go right again to other friends. And so, farewell,
0: Sir Michael. Lovely. Wow.
2: Tis Why is, but is, I, you,
8: uh, Ariana, you mentioned that this scene is frequently cut. Why is that?
0: Um, because it's two characters that we don't see anywhere else in the play. Who but their they? information <laughs> is so
8: important.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I I agree. I mean, I, I actually <laughs> remember I used this. Uh, the only set that I had was this gigantic wooden table um, that I used in every scene up until this point. And then I used this scene like because the archbishop is talking about packing up his household and kind of going in. So I used this scene to finally get the table off. And then also to sort of, as each one of these characters is being mentioned, I had them sort of up here so that they were on opposite sides of the stage, just to give us a visual of like, this is the opposing side. But the Glendower, I think because we already know Glendower isn't coming, Mm
8: -hmm.
0: which we've gotten, we know that Mortimer, well, we don't know that Mortimer isn't coming. We get that information here. Right. And um, so the new bits of information are that Mortimer isn't there and that Glendower is or rules by prophecies, and that's the reason he's not coming. But other than that, we do know the rest of the information. So I, I sort of think of this scene as like, in conclusion, <laughs> this is where we stand before the battle. Um, but to me, again, it's like this scene gives us context and gives us, shows us yet another part of England that we haven't seen, the clergy, that are engaged in this war. And we will, we will get to know this archbishop a lot more in the next play, actually.
6: Yeah, and I also think, you know, harking back again to the beginning of the play, where, you know, the information about the wanting to go to Jerusalem and and fight and the holy wars and, Mm -hmm. and then you have this faction of the Church of England here, and pitting, you know, the religious, religion pitting against religion, the same religion, Mm -hmm. It, it seems kind of vital. Well, and just
0: there, to me, also they—they aren't. Yes, they aren't yet a se- separate from Rome. That's right. No,
5: so they're—they're a bunch of dirty papists, and of course, a bunch of dirty papists are going to hold you know some 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 truck against the rightful king of England. Okay. we can't okay. we can't have a he okay. can't have no Protestant Shakespeare play without some dirty papists coming in then- and. Being yeah,
6: papists. if the, it hasn't separated yeah. then even more so i mean even more so i think it's an yeah. important scene <laughs>
0: absolutely well absolutely and and we will see you know again uh the power of the clergy is incredibly they're just an incredibly potent force um and we will see you know the reason a very big reason that the that Henry goes to France is because these two bishops are just egging him on and have hilarious, hilarious speeches um, that basically say, oh yes, because of this thing, this Salic law, which means France, but it's really Germany. And because Wolfric of whatever was the one who, it's like this ridiculously long two page speech that is completely almost um, impossible to parse out and then he sort of ends with which means as clear as day you have total <laughs> rain in France and, and and Henry's like do I <laughs> I, I couldn't really I, tell
3: Koi yeah. uh, <laughs> I just want to give a shout out to all these scenes I love scenes in movies uh and where where you have a cutaway to a people that you'll never see again yeah. and it's you know like the like the garbage men or the doctors and just like yeah that's what's going on right and, and then and then it kind of has nothing to do with anything and you you're just,
8: a Hitchcock like, fan aren't you <laughs> I love
3: those scenes they're great they're so great
0: well and again it it, it 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 lends a luster to use a phrase uh from this play um
3: it always broadens the world right it always makes yeah. you realize oh there's more people in the world and different people have different perspectives on the main plot than what our main characters are telling us is, is how to look at it. Absolutely.
0: Well, and they see the, um, they're reading the, the writing on the wall uh, in a much more pragmatic way than the rebels that we have seen. And that they're like, well, we're not at the battlefield, but we know that if the King wins the day, he's heading straight for us, which is exactly how we end the play is, um, the king divides up this, this army, and um, sends his son, John, and Westmoreland to attack Northumberland and this archbishop, and then he and Harry are headed to Wales to fight with Glendower and Mortimer, so, you know, they're, they're, they're no fools in this scene, they know exactly um, what's going on, and once again, it's about passing information through letters you know you just I feel like that's it's the most it's almost in a way the most I love uh props and to me it was like the most important prop in this play is just mountains of letters that all have oh, information that's very like important and that no one is going to get any other way that and I feel like you could you could do this play with like a whole bunch of tankards a stack of letters and some swords and you're good it's just (laughs) and a chicken um (laughs) but yeah anyway mitch yeah
2: just two observations about the archbishop um Mm. one is that i don't think there is a single reference to religion or yeah. God in this scene? Not at all. Um, I, I've been—I didn't notice him as I was reading, and I haven't been able to find one wow. as I've been scanning since then. The second is—it was sort of my impression that he uh, of this scene that he was trying to get more people to go fight in the battle, but that's not true. I just realized on that reading what he says in the last line is he's trying to get more people to come to him to to defend his region. He's yeah. he's like, okay, the battle's gonna be lost, and then probably. And then the King's going to come after us. So he's actually trying to get people to come defend York or wherever it is, you know, he he and his people there.
0: Well, and the Kings of England have a, a very rich long history of when they get low on cash, they just go and sack all of the, the abbeys and the priories, which is like one of the first lines in King John, they figure they're going to go to France. They have to go to France. And as soon as the French ambassador leaves, King John says, oh yeah, our albibes and our priories shall pay for this expedition. And that's actually one of the reasons that then the Pope sends one of his cardinals to be like, uh-uh, nah-uh, we ain't paying for this shit, you know? And that's a, you know, another, another- Brexit. F- yeah which is
5: which is why we should not be letting you know some guy sitting on a throne in italy you know (laughs) letting us run our our medieval country i i'm i shakespeare's relationship to catholicism is i think a very 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 interesting subject matter and one not for this particular moment but Mm. uh uh he has both a lot of love for it and then also a lot of politics from his time period. Mm. But like the fact that the archbishop does not mention God here and it's like, we need to protect my lands. I, it's really hard for me not to read that. as just like a little bit of like a uh, uh, Tudor tutor, um, tutor <laughs> propaganda, anti-Catholic propaganda that's just like there for a second. I, I don't think that wouldn't have been lost on anybody that was watching uh, the show at this time period, especially when everything was in such flux.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But then we get those wonderful, as you say, we get those wonderful moments of, you know, Hamlet's father is a ghost that's stuck in purgatory, which is a very Catholic uh, place to be stuck
2: (laughs) as it were. It it also doesn't strike me here that like, I mean, Yes, I, I totally agree that people would be like, notice that it's a bishop and he's not doing anything with religion. But it also doesn't even strike me as the point of the scene. It it almost strikes me yeah. as like an understood <laughs> fact, yeah. right? Sure. That like the, the bishops were political. Yes. Uh, and that they just yeah. also the the other t- one of the other times the bishop was mentioned uh is in the map division. Uh always yeah. going back to the map with me. <laughs> um, but uh I think what Mortimer says is that the, the archdeacon hath divided it. So the yeah. Bishop is the person who was like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. And then like yeah. sent the plan off to the rest of them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that whole thing of uh, tripartite, I yeah. remember looking this up and there was this incredible thing that they actually would cut into the parchment along the map lines and then they would affix their seals as like this is mine, this is mm-hmm. the other one, this is the other one. So there, there is there is an interesting, not even metaphorical dividing of the. It's like this kind of really violent, like cutting the map open, um, which is 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 a part of this this deal that they're that they're making. Any final thoughts on Act Four?
1: I know this is because I'm reading for Hosmer, but I he's so abandoned yeah. like the end of that scene i'm like they are sacrificing this very valuable soldier you know what i mean yeah i just yeah.
0: damn damn. Yeah. damn is absolutely accurate Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. So, he's abandoned i mean he's really what's interesting to me is that Worcester's is still there right because worcester mm-hmm. has really been the the brains behind this entire rebellion and Worcester doesn't die in battle, but he is executed very shortly afterwards because Henry knows how potent he is as a political force in the kingdom. Yeah, Kelly.
4: Yeah. And going off of what Coy was saying earlier about who's in the room in, in these scenes, and obviously not the scene, but the scene prior, Worcester stops talking as soon as anyone sort of outside the family comes in. Yep. And is obviously just watching. Um, which, you know, we talked about him sort of being a, the high political mind um, and obviously knowing what happens <laughs> coming up. Um, it's really interesting that Hotspur maybe puts his faith in him too much too soon, you know? Well, and we'll see there's or a- too late to you know.
0: Yeah, and we'll see in, in Act 5, there is a huge decision that Worcester makes not to tell Hotspur and Douglas about the kind offer from the king. And his political reason for it is utterly fascinating. Um, Sam, and then Coy?
5: I think it's related to that abandonment. I think that uh, except for the little uh, scene with the Douglas at the top of this act, I I do think it's kind of important that the last time we sort of saw these characters, they had the whole argument about how they're carving up the land too. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. even in that scene, they are not a unified rebellion from the top. These are uh, a, a, a collection of men who all have aims that are sort of pointed in the same direction, but they are not a unified whole. And I think that that scene with the argument between them foreshadows this absolute disaster that's about to happen where people are not showing up because of prophecy, because of sickness, everybody has their excuse because I I always get the sense that when we finish up that scene of dividing up the land, nobody's kind of as happy as they should be with what they have, even if they're agreeing to it. so that just when uh, Genevieve was talking about that feeling of abandonment there it's like well yeah but it is it it's really narratively well foreshadowed and set up by Shakespeare I think that this is not the best rebellion that's ever shown up on the shores of
8: England.
0: <laughs> well and 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 the Percy family has different reasons for rebelling than the Welsh and the Scottish who want their independence and want you know the English colonizers for lack of a better You know name to just stop bothering them um which is kind of what they've wanted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um uh koi and then kelly yeah i just wanted to
3: uh, kudos to shakespeare you know we all like what he's you know his work's (laughs) done but but uh, for looking at a political event and one that even was in the past at his time and we've all seen really bad biopics or or fictionalizations of real events, especially if they're political or war-based. And to take large political actions and to, to only be viewing them through the perspective of the characters and how they affect the characters emotionally. And we're not spending all the time talking about why these 10,000 men decided to come or not come or who's there, who's, you know, all that stuff really has nothing to do with the story. It doesn't, what, what matters is, how the characters feel and and what they're doing um, which i think is just like it's a great example of when it's done well even the largest scale things come down to the characters and the conflicts they have emotionally with each other uh and everything else even if it's massive wars and battles that really isn't the focus um it's just yeah it, i see a lot too many movies i guess today where they're where they're trying to retell these historical moments and they're focusing on the logistics of the moment when that's not what's interesting in a story
0: i totally agree koi i think that's that's very well put it's it, it, i think one of the the challenges when you're putting on a history play as a production and one of the challenges of marketing it is people feel like when they go to a history play oh my god i have homework to do before i see this and it's like no 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 just go for the story go for the these characters will draw you in immediately you'll you'll get emotionally involved you don't need to know the backstory and i think that's well, I- as much research as I like to do, I think ultimately you can't act research, you know, you, it has to be about the human story. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, Kelly and then Dee. Nick.
4: Well, and I, mean, I think this is gonna go a little bit to your point about marketing as well, but you know, I think when we imagine these things or we have potentially have seen these plays uh, or versions of them on film or television they do seem so in a way sort of far removed from us, which can be lovely. You know, we all like, you know, we go to Downton Abbey for escapism and all of that kind of things. But um, I I just, I can't help but think every time that we've talked about this map as we were recording this at the end of 2020, how much we just watched a political primary Mm. where people are either one of two parties usually that are fighting it out in order to have power of this one party and then we spend time looking at certain areas of a map okay. that no one's really happy about. You know, no one's yeah. happy about what their division of the map is. And I think, gosh, like I it's it goes, I guess, along to like it's all just a little bit of history repeating. But it is so surprisingly relevant to me when I think about in terms of like, you know, we're not looking at a map that someone has necessarily, you know torn with knives and blood and affixed stamps into, but we are still ruled by a map. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Yeah, that is great.
0: Uh, D.
8: Oh, I, I, it's just, I've said so often and repeatedly that it's impossible to tell everything there is to tell about war, you cannot possibly do it. All you can do is isolate a moment and then reveal the character's interaction. And that seems to me exactly what we're seeing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Coy, would you share
3: with us that quote? That's great. (laughs) Yeah, just people talking about uh, breaking up the map. I just, um, I was told that a good compromise is one where everyone is upset with the outcome. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's really accurate today. yes it's really and everyone accurate. is yeah. yeah
3: yeah, but that means that it's good that means it's
0: it is a good co- everyone had to give something up right i mean that's yeah. the that's the important there was a sacrifice well speaking uh, yeah. of sacrifices yeah sam
5: <laughs> Oh no, i just think that that's like that i believe that that quote is supposed to be like for democratic politics specifically <laughs> in which which actually does make sense but i think that what's interesting is when you have heads of household right where the state the house the the body politic is actually physically embodied in the human being where there is one person that is both like the executive and the legislature of that household, then compromise where everybody feels bad about it leads to exactly what's about to happen to Hotspur. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and you do highlight, and, and, and I'm being like a little bit facetious, but I think that you are highlighting a point where as, as somebody, I think it was actually you Coy was uh, in Shakespeare's own time, this rise of mercantilism and a new class of people and how parliament had evolved over the years, that that there's definitely, again, there is something about that old nobility that Hotspur um, represents that is romantic and beautiful and bold, but it is not the way of a modern politic. Mm-hmm. Um, which is getting more towards, oh, yeah, we should all be unhappy with a compromise, (laughs) you know? So I think that that is an interesting thing that you're seeing playing out, especially in the Shakespeare histories, is because as much as they're about their time period, sort of, they're all about what's going on in Elizabethan England, like any historical epic that you do, whether or not, you know, it's, I'm going blank on the director's name, but Danton, the Polish Danton, that's not really about the French revolution as much as it is about solidarity in Poland at the time and what's going on in Polish politics at that time. And yeah, so I just- Well, and then, and then
0: our viewing of these histories with all of their different layers like i i just uh recently watched for the first time this incredible anti-fascist movie z which is like a greek movie that's in french and i was like watching it through the lens of like our current political system and like oh my god was this maybe yesterday like it's just it's 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 devastating and then you realize oh no but this is actually in response to what was happening in that country at the time but we, every time we see a, a history, we like to map our own contemporary resonance onto it. Um, and, and that it just, it's, it's, how we, it's how we feel these history plays instead of just sort of intellectually experiencing them.